1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nolpeth You may or may not agree that a bill legalizing adult use of cannabis was the high point of the legislative session. On Tuesday, that bill became law when Governor Lamont signed legislation legalizing recreational marijuana for adults 21 and over. Now, cannabis has been debated for several years in the General Assembly. And even in the final days before its passage, the bill highlighted tensions among state lawmakers and the governor related to Connecticut's focus on putting equity first in efforts to legalize marijuana. Today, where we live, we speak to State Representative Robin Porter, a Democrat who's been a critic of the governor work on an amendment over who gets licenses to grow and sell cannabis led the governor to threaten to veto the bill. But that amendment was taken out, and by the end, the state Senate voted three times on the cannabis bill before the legislation passed. Now the state needs to implement legalization, including retail. We're going to talk about next steps and take your questions, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter, at where we live. representative robin porter again she's house co-chair of the general assembly labor committee she's a democrat and represents parts of new haven and hamden representative porter welcome back to the show thank you lucy so happy to be with you this morning Now, I watched that uh, ceremony yesterday when Governor Lamont signed this cannabis bill into law. I understand you were not there at the bill signing. Uh, Last Friday, you put out a statement saying your conscience was conflicted about this marijuana legalization bill because it was not focused enough on equity. So talk about what you meant. What would you have liked to have seen in this bill before it became law?
0: Um, Well, I think it was, the fact that uh, there was an amendment. So first I want to thank Senator Winfield for his support and for putting forth the amendment that would have included criminal histories as a qualifier for the social equity uh, definition. And that was important to me because I felt like that would, you know, level the playing field in the way that the bill had been constructed. Uh, Not to mention that most of the states that have legalized um, or municipalities that have done so have actually used that qualifier when it comes to criminal history, which would include either someone who had been convicted, um, arrested or convicted of cannabis charges or a spouse, parent or child. So we led with a place based definition and I wanted to have a compromise that included people based because You don't have community until you have people and families. And there were people and families that were intentionally and maliciously targeted uh, when Nixon decided that there would be a war of what he called on drugs, a war of what I call on uh, black and poor people. Uh, And what they even said was blacks and hippies, not my words, but uh, his advisor's words.
1: So again, your amendment would have added convictions as a social equity qualifier, so not necessarily tying a person to where they live or lived in this disproportionately impacted census tract area, which is now part of this law representative.
0: Uh, that is correct. It would have been tied to the income qualifier which reads and then you have uh, or and right it would be. The income qualifier, 300% the median income, and either a person that has lived in the, the community five out of the 10 years or nine out of the 18 is how it currently stands. My amendment would have added qualifiers to the income medium qualifier. You could be a person that was arrested or convicted, or you could be uh, a family member, a spouse, a parent, or a child. And as I stated, you know. There there are places, in fact, Massachusetts actually did two different equity designation definitions. Uh, They have one for license and priority, which requires three out of the six, and one for support programs and technical assistance, which requires one out of the five. And uh, the latter is more lenient, but both have race-conscious qualifiers, which go even further. And when I say a race-conscious qualifier, Massachusetts language uh, one of the qualifiers is a majority of the ownership is made up of individuals from Black, African-American, Hispanic, or Latino descent. So, I mean, they took it even one step further. Hmm.
1: But didn't Massachusetts have some real problems with rollout when we're talking about equity? So even if those uh, that language was there, wasn't it still problematic? Is this what Connecticut was trying to avoid? Uh...
0: Uh, no, actually, you know, the data and the precedent in other states say otherwise, which really goes to show you know, <laughs> who did their homework and who didn't, um, that was not a problem for them. It hasn't been a problem for other places that have legalized with this as one of the qualifiers. And it is one of the qualifiers. It's not like you have to have this qualified, but I believe since there was intention, <laughs> which was quite malicious around the way cannabis was criminalized from the onset, that you know we should be intentional about the people we're including when we talk about equity because equity it requires access you know equity requires reckoning you know and as, as senator winfield said it also requires revenues so, i mean all of these things come into play and i just didn't understand the pushback and the narrative around the fact that this would open it up to rich white guys and i'm like well if we talk about the income qualifier, we're talking about 300 percent of the median income, which is roughly about 237 thousand dollars a person can make up to in order to be considered a social equity applicant. I think that opens it up to a lot of white guys. So the the, the intent of the amendment was to really level the playing field in, in how we see um, and define equity.
1: You're hearing State Representative Robin Porter. Again, she's a Democrat. Uh, She worked behind the scenes on an amendment to uh, open up uh, the cannabis uh, sale and uh, operating businesses to even more residents. That amendment ended up not making it through that special session, Uh, the governor and others saying uh, that would not be equity. And so there's a lot of argument about what is and is not equity, Representative Porter. You ended up not voting on this bill after all the work that you and others. Put into it. Why
0: was that? Uh, Actually, there was an emergency that had me away from the campus. Um, Representative Parrott had been taken by ambulance to the hospital. And uh, what some people or many people may not know is that I've known him for uh, much longer than he's been in the building. Um, He is like a son to me, and I'm like a second mom to him. And I've been doing this work long enough, Lucy, to realize that, you know. We have to put family first, we have to put, you know, the people that matter most first. And it it was a, you know, it was a tough decision like we both tussled with it. But at the end of the day, what prevailed was the fact that I needed to be with him and I need to get him home so that he could rest and I could make sure that he was okay. So that's why I wasn't in the building and that's why I didn't vote.
1: How did it make you feel knowing that, you know, there was a bipartisan, nearly unanimous vote to strip your amendment out of the bill?
0: Um, It was disappointing, you know, it was disheartening. I felt like it was a tremendous amount of miscommunication. And I think the thing that really um, was upsetting to me was, you know, there was this narrative that it was something that the Senate had done, you know, and this is what the Senate does. And, and I was like, well, actually house leadership knew about the amendment. In fact, house leadership, you know, drafted the second amendment because there was an initial amendment that Senator Winfield introduced. And then the house came back with an amendment to fix, you know, <laughs> what he had done. And, um, I was contacted by the majority leader, Jason Rojas, and he asked me to give, um, his chief of staff Matthew Brockman or either four amounts of call. So I ended up calling uh, Brockman and Brockman walked me through and he said, we just wanna make sure that your intent is being carried out correctly, And that what you're trying to do is in fact, what's, what's being done. And they crafted a second amendment and that amendment was taken out before the vote happened in the Senate. So I just wanted to to clear the record on that, that you know, the House was well aware, House leadership, I should say, was well aware of what was going on around this amendment.
1: And how is Representative Corey Paris doing, by the way?
0: He's doing better. Thank you for asking, Lucy, he is doing better. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to report that because it gave him quite a scare. So
1: uh, getting back uh, to this bill that's now law, yesterday when I was watching the the bill signing, uh, the governor, other lawmakers and, and leadership in the General Assembly all calling this a model for the nation. Do you think that this was an accomplishment in the end or a missed opportunity?
0: Um, I definitely believe um, it was both. Um, And there were some opportunities that were missed. Um, As hard as we worked, there is no perfect bill. There's never a perfect bill. But what I will say is that, you know, thanks to uh, 6377, which was the House bill that I got out of labor in response to the lack of equity in the governor's initial uh, Senate bill 888, uh, we were able to get quite a bit that wasn't initially on the table and that was you know, home growth. We were able to prior, prioritize licensing for equity applicants, uh, taxes that were earmarked for impacted community investment, uh, jobs you know, for, for people with criminal histories. The labor peace agreement was really big, the project labor agreement, um, support for our native tribes, our sisters and brothers out there, and um, protections for students, which was something that was also very important um, was included so there were some some great takeaways um, but there was definitely uh, room for improvement and you know it was never about <laughs> it was never about killing the bill it was about making the bill better you know i've heard so much out there you know being said on the street about this but i just want to be clear about that you know my intent has always been and will always be you know about exercising My moral authority and my political will to represent the people that put me in that building on the strength of what it is that's best for them, you know, in regard to fairness and equity.
1: You're hearing State Representative Robin Porter on Zoom here on Where We Live. She's House Co-Chair of the General Assembly Labor Committee. She's a Democrat who represents parts of New Haven and Hamden. Right now we're talking about the cannabis law uh, here in our state. And if you have questions about next steps, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before I talk more with you about the next steps, including this equity council, who will be on it, what decisions they'll make, I wanted to ask about your relationship with the governor, how would you describe it? Challenging. And why is that?
0: Uh, we we don't see eye to eye on things, you know, and it's just really I think a difference of lived experience and uh, a difference of priorities, and it does make it challenging when you're at the table uh, fighting for the things that you know matter to people that aren't usually at the table. So I, I would sum it up. <laughs> it's a work in progress, you know, and I hope that it's something that has room for improvement. Um, but I have to remain true to to who I am and and whose I am, and and to the people that that have entrusted me to be in that building, you know, uh, doing the people's business in the people's house. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, The other week when the governor's uh, office released a statement uh, threatening a veto over this amendment, you posted a a defiant message on Facebook, quote, I dare him. Have you had a discussion with him or his staff in the days since?
0: Uh, No, they don't really talk to me. And and frankly, they don't want me at the table. Um, And I say that because that's what I've been told by people who are actually at the table. Um, And that's something that I just think really needs to be we need to be honest about, you know, that is part of the challenge. Um, and I think it comes because I do have strong will and and, and I'm very vocal, you know, but I don't think that's the reason to keep me away from the table. I think it's, I think it's a reason to have me at the table. So when I say challenging, I mean, challenging on um, every level um, of doing this work.
1: You say that uh, they're keeping you away from the table. So when we, when we talk about part of this law uh, requiring equity council uh, again, that's going to look at this new industry and thinking about ways to help people in communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, who will be involved in this finding the membership and you know, what decisions will they make, Representative?
0: Uh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it will be up to the folks that are outlined in the bill. I mean, like the Speaker of the House, the majority leader, minority folks, um, the governor's people, they will all have, um, appointees, people that they will appoint to those positions and it will be critical. It will be crucial who is at that table. And I think that, you know, it should be, the entrepreneurs um, that have expertise around cannabis in this industry. I think it should be uh, the folks that have been disproportionately impacted and criminalized for uh, these cannabis convictions. Those are the folks that I would like to see at the table having some input because I really believe that, you know, it shouldn't be so heavily the then should be so heavy on the government's part, right? On our part, I always say the people closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. So, you know, state agencies should not be regulating, you know, all of this. We should have a commission made of experts, entrepreneurs, you know, people that have been impacted by previous racist drug policies. You know, that's the other thing, let's, let's talk about it. And that's why I was so adamant about uh, the amendment and including you know, the folks that had been arrested because it wasn't just black folks that were targeted. You know, like I said, if you go back and you know the history of it, um, they call them anti-war people. They called them hippies. They were poor white folks, you know, that, that also got caught up in this. And I don't think that you can talk about equity without including them. So this, this whole argument around, you know, the validity of that and, and, and inclusion is, is, is a little absurd to me.
1: I understand the governor and some lawmakers have 30 days from passage to make appointments Mm -hmm. to this council. So will you push this equity council to revisit the equity definition, again, allowing anyone with a marijuana conviction to be eligible, not tying them to a geographic area representative?
0: Oh, absolutely. I will push them on that. And the other thing that, you know, in the end, I was also harping on that didn't get much media attention was um you know the expungement piece you know the way the bill is currently written you can only qualify for expungement for four ounces or less and i mean you know i grew up an inner city kid and i can tell you uh the dealers that i knew um were selling ounces so they possessed pounds and if we're talking about expunging and, and really being equitable about it, I don't think there should be an amount attached to it since it shouldn't have been criminalized in the first place.
1: We know that cannabis is a multibillion dollar industry. How many licenses to grow and sell could Connecticut actually permit, really?
0: Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And I think that has often been the question of the hour because I believe it's Oregon that doesn't have any limit and they've got about 9,000 medicinal licenses going right now. Um, And it's frankly very cheap. Uh, You can get a license for, I believe, about $2,500. So I think it all depends on what the objective and the goal is. And there seems to be, um, you know, like a serious goal around revenues and, 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 you know, like raising revenues. So they may limit it, which would be problematic in my book. I I think that that's something that over time will play out and we will be be able to make a better assessment around. But um, I would have liked to have seen the cap increase on on
1: licensing. I guess what I'm wondering is we... hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is when we, with the way the law is written now, you know, half of all the people who will be, get licenses will be these social equity applicants. But we know that there are already uh, companies around our country that, that know the process that have already, um, that are already operating in other states that are legal. And so, how many, you know, small business owners in our state really will benefit from this?
0: That's a good question. I mean, especially when you talk about the fact that the four growers in Connecticut are going to actually, Be granted um, a hybrid pathway to automatically enter the adult use um, industry. And, you know, we've seen in other places where, like Illinois, for instance, um, after a year, you know, of passing this legislation, they're still struggling with the social equity piece of it. Meanwhile, right, not one black or brown business, but meanwhile, You know, the the, the white (laughs) male-owned businesses that took off, you know, they actually have made hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's a real good question, Lucy, and that is a concern.
1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, I'm speaking again with State Representative Robin Porter. We were talking about the the new cannabis law uh, that the governor signed. Uh, Coming up after the break, we're going to hear more about some of the labor issues that Representative Porter uh, worked on with her colleagues in this last session. And you can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on Zoom, State Representative Robin Porter, a Democrat House co-chair of the General Assembly Labor Committee. She represents parts of New Haven and Hamden. If you have a question for her, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. So I wanted to talk about some of the legislation your committee worked on, Representative. Let's start with pay transparency. This was signed by the governor recently Tell us more about what this will require employers to do. This was uh, a big one for
3: us. The disclosure um, salary range. Um, it actually will,
0: uh, employers, employers will have, have to
3: make sure
0: that when you apply for a job or prior to being made a native walker, that you understand,
3: understand
0: what the salary range is on this job. And that's important because with the <laughs> The disproportionate pay with women, right? The wage gap for women, and how we always started out behind the ball. Uh, and even as we go on and move up the ladder, we consistently stay behind, uh, losing millions for some of us, Black and Brown women, um, over a 40 year career. So we saw this as something that really needed to be addressed in um, a way that would be effective in helping to continue our um plight to close that that pay equity
1: gap i understand that the bill requires employers to pay people of different genders the same for quote comparable work instead of quote equal work so what difference does that make in in the wording uh, representative
0: um i mean like comparable makes the distinction between where we are you know there was a time when We addressed this issue because of like factory work and having men on a floor doing the same work as men were doing. But now we know that a lot of that has changed around uh, cafeteria versus janitorial, um, and the the really huge gaps that were being seen between you know people doing comparable work um, and what they were being paid. And I'm talking. Five hour, an hour difference in some instances. So we felt like, you know, changing the comparable was necessary to address what we've come um, in the workforce since um, pay equity has been, been addressed from early on in the 60s.
1: Now, the Connecticut Business and Industry Association or CBIA, they said this law is gonna take away employers' freedom to pay more to talented employees. How do you respond to that argument?
0: I respond by simply saying, I don't think that that is true. I think that it levels the playing field. I think that, you know, it it grants transparency, um, especially where it's needed and that it actually helps to build relationships, you know, between employee and employer. And it also gives, you know, disclosure and and accountability and, and transparency to the folks that are working there. You know, I think that everybody deserves to be on a level playing field. And this is a tool that helps us get there. And I believe that it's good for business and it's good for the workers. I think it's a win-win for everyone.
1: Let's also talk about workers' compensation. Uh, There were labor committee bills that would have given more generous workers' compensation benefits to essential employees who got sick during the pandemic that failed to make it into law this session. But I believe there was a last-minute provision uh, in the budget bill that created a $34 million assistance program for essential employees. Uh, Tell us about, were you involved in the creation of this fund, Representative?
0: Uh, Absolutely. This was me and dear. I mean, for the fact that uh, it was for our essential workers, um, but especially because of Denise and Howard Rogers, who are uh, two of my constituents out of Hampton. Unfortunately, uh, both contracted COVID and Howard ended up passing Denise's husband. So this became something that um, me and Senator Cushion took on early on in the pandemic last year in March, when all this stuff started happening. So the bill actually does create the $34 million, uh, what we're calling the essential workers COVID-19 assistance program, uh, for certain essential workers who couldn't work due to, um, contracting COVID or, um, having the symptoms so that the fund is going to be administered by the state controller, um, and it's going to be, which is important, first come first serve basis. Uh, to health care personnel, firefighters, police officers, correction officers, food, agriculture workers, manufacturing workers, you know, et cetera. And um, I think that's going to be really important because I know Denise is sitting on thousands of dollars worth of hospital bills. Um, we also addressed the, the death benefit in here where it's currently $4,000 and it has been that since 1987. So. We've increased that. And uh, some of that will be taken out of this fund in order to help people cover burial in the unfortunate um, circumstance that someone passes from COVID. Mm -hmm.
1: You said first come, first serve. It's a $34 million assistance program. Any concern that you may run out of funds to help people who needed these essential workers?
0: Uh, Yes, there's always the concern that we're gonna run out of money. Uh, But I'm hoping that we will uh, be back at this and be able to put more money in the fund as we move forward with the federal funding that's coming available in the ARC.
1: Again, you're hearing State Representative Robin Porter, who represents parts of New Haven and Hamden. She is co-chair of the Labor Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. You can join us 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we talked about some successes, but you were also working towards what was called the Fair Work Week bill. It passed the Senate, but it came up short for a vote in the House. Uh, Tell us what this bill would have required and and why it didn't make it through, Representative.
0: Well, field work week, I mean, like we know that low wage workers are uh, what we call on shift call scheduling, um, which makes it really hard for um, people to plan around doctor's appointments and childcare and just life in general. Uh, And most of these workers are women, uh, predominantly black and brown women. And this has been something that we've been trying to do for years to address the fact that, you know, people have a budget. You know what it is that you're going to need in order to sustain your household. And you can't do that not knowing what your work hours are going to be from week to week. And this bill was um, an effort to address that. Uh, It's been done. Several places, so this isn't anything new that we were trying to do, and we have made uh, concessions in order to make the bill palatable. But unfortunately, it did not uh, make it out of the house. So that will definitely be a bill that we come back to um, next year in the short session uh, to make another effort to get get through the general assembly.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the earlier bill that we just talked about, the workers' compensation uh, bill, uh, that actually got through, I believe, through the budget bill or the implementer bill. Uh, you know, some people yeah. criticized this this uh, way uh, that lawmakers, uh, you know, get things through that have not been approved uh, earlier. Can you talk about uh, this this strategy and you know address the critics of why this is not necessarily a good way of of making uh, programs and laws representative?
0: I mean, there's always that argument that is made and the implementer is really to implement the budget and to also deal with bills that didn't make it through the final process of both chambers. So it's not necessarily that these bills haven't been heard or had a public hint because they have. Um, it's just the way that things have been done. I've been in the building seven years. They've been done like that way before I got there. So whether I like it or not, um, that is a part of the process. This is nothing new, and this is how business is done, and not just in the state of Connecticut. Um, but I will say there was an, there was another bill um, that I'm really proud of, which was the domestic workers bill that uh, got through the implementer, which addresses the fact that domestic workers have historically been left out of Uh, workers' rights um, provisions in law and um, the fact that they are supposed to be paid minimum wage and a lot of them don't know that. So this would actually provide them with funding to educate um, domestic workers on what their rights are and the fact that they should be paid over time and to address the tremendous amount of wage theft that goes on uh, within this industry.
1: You know, we've been talking about some of the bills that you've worked on, some of the bills that have become law. Uh, When you look back at this session, uh, Democrats hold the majority in both chambers. We've got a Democrat in the governor's office. Uh, Do you see this as a a successful session, Representative? Uh, Were there issues that you hoped that would have been raised and passed, uh, given the, the majority?
3: Uh,
0: Yes, I do see this as a successful session. I mean, we we talked about a few of the labor bills, but I mean, the first bill out the gate for me was um, part of of history. It was historical. Uh, We were the eighth state and the first in 2021 to pass the Crown Act. Uh, We also uh, passed a a bill to deal with the experience rate that would benefit especially businesses, but especially small businesses where they wouldn't be held um, liable because unemployment was due to the pandemic and not to them laying people off uh, the other bill that i was really proud of was the ptsi bill it was an expansion on ptsi first to change it from post-traumatic stress disorder to post um, traumatic stress injury because it is an injury to the mind a mental injury and we expanded that, Lucy, to include all DOC workers, um, our dispatchers who are on the front lines um, as first responders and also um, particular healthcare workers. So that was something that, that, that was a big deal. Uh, the Janus bill, right, to, to address the right of workers and employees to organize and unionize. Um, and the disparity study, you know, that was a big one as well, something we've been trying to do for quite a while around. Making an assessment around small minority businesses and, and contracting, and how that is not equally, you know, put out there for um, the minority businesses to access. Mm-hmm.
1: But Democrats didn't get uh, everything they wanted. You know, there was a group of Democrats that you included that wanted to see, um, re- you know, hikes on uh, the amount of taxes that the wealthy uh, pay in our state, uh, in turn, that money to help low-income residents. Uh, you know, how do you describe in this process with the governor, uh, again, with the final budget and, you know, what you hope to see uh, in this next session?
0: Well, it was certainly a missed opportunity to um, bring tax equity and fairness to the state. And, um, you know, we we coined it a recovery for all because, you know, some people have done very well during this pandemic, but the majority of us have not. And I just believe that, you know, the things that were being suggested, you know, around closing that gap and making sure that people are paying their fair share uh, was a, an outright refusal to even, you know, have a discussion around it, and I thought that was very unfortunate because we know what works and what doesn't work, and 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 it's I think it's something a fifth grader could figure out. The more money you make, <laughs> the more taxes you should pay. And when we talk about wealth, we know that that is not income, so we have to look at investments in a way that we allow people to uh, claim tax credits and. You know, corporate welfare, you know, we, we we demonize people that are on welfare, quote, unquote, right, through stamps and cash assistance, but we don't address um, the, the runaway inequality, not just in this state, but nationally. So that was a great disappointment that we weren't able um, to move him on that um, issue. But we are persistent. <laughs> we are not going away. And we will continue to fight that good fight.
1: And before we end, you know, I have to ask, you know, what this last session has been like for you personally with everyone dealing with this pandemic uh, business, uh, the way you do your work, obviously having to change with restrictions. I'm just wondering if you can talk about, uh, you know, personally how you've navigated this the last year.
0: Oh, what a whole lot of prayer. You know, I never thought in a million years I would be doing this work. And I've often felt, you know, or suffered from imposter syndrome. And the one thing that I believe God has really, you know, tried to to help me to understand in doing the work is that it's not what I'm learning in the building, it's what I bring to the building. And that is, you know, exceptional in many ways, which makes it a different fight for me. You know, so personally, um, I've been under a lot of, you know, pressure and a lot of stress to get the work done, feeling like I'm constantly having to fight, you know, fights and battles that I shouldn't have to, uh, with people I shouldn't have to. So it, it's been challenging, you know, but at the end of the day, I always focus on my purpose in that building and, and why I was chosen, because I believe I was chosen, many are called, but few are chosen to be in the building. So I, I try to maintain myself according to, you know, the assignment and the pandemic made it very challenging. Um, and the thing that I really didn't understand, especially towards the end of the session, was why the governor didn't choose to open a building. I mean, like, it's the people's house, it's the people's business, but the people were missing, you know, and, and we had press in the building and other folks. And I'm just like that. That was a disappointment. Like, I really felt like it at one point we should have um, opened the building and allowed people to come in and and conduct business in a way that I feel would have been more transparent um, and more effective. So the things that we didn't get done, I think had something to do with the fact that we were (laughs) secluded and that that building was closed off. And um, unfortunately, you know, the public didn't have access in a way that I think was meaningful. I have been thank God for Zoom because it did allow people that normally wouldn't be able to make the trip to Harford or participate in public hearings or committee meetings to be present. But it also locked out the people that, you know, customarily have access to us, um, immediate access, right? <laughs> you know, you're getting texts and phone calls. People aren't getting you. Uh, You're not getting people, but it's hard. It's easier when you can run into somebody in the building, you know, have lunch with them in the cafeteria, talk to them in the elevator, catch them after a meeting, catch them in the hallway. So the magic of the building really was not there this year. And I'm I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful that that will not be the case um, in our next session 2022.
1: Well, I want to thank State Representative Robin Porter for joining us here on Where We Live. just wanted to mention uh, Cody on Facebook wrote that he appreciates your compassion and work on cannabis and also says she legit gives the best hugs ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thank for you being for... a hugger. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lucy. It's always a pleasure to be in your presence and I do appreciate it.
1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to get analysis from Hartford Current columnist Kevin Rennie and also talk about the selection of a new Republican Party chairman in our state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Kevin Runney, Hartford current columnist, a former state lawmaker. He blogs at dailyrunctions.com. Kevin, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, Lucy.
1: I wanted to ask you before we talk about uh, the state uh, GOP party and, and who is the new chair, uh, what was your reaction to what State Representative Robin Porter shared, including that you know she told us the governor's office does not want her at the table. Is that unusual to hear from a lawmaker about um, a, a governor in her own party?
3: It is. Uh, members of uh, the same party as the governor, in this case the Democrats, usually pretty careful about their public well or circumspect about their public statements uh on on the governor and uh so that is unusual but you know she's she's carving out her own lane uh, in the legislature and by her own description she's she's getting a lot of what she hopes to uh, accomplish um, and uh, so she's she has uh, learned how to get around that uh, that hostility and um you no know, not everybody not every legislator who thinks they should be at the table is going to be at the table um they that's just that's just the, the nature of how the legislature uh, uh works with the governor and really even among them even among themselves there there are on some issues uh members who are leaders and there are others who become rank and file and uh when they get to negotiating uh usually they want people at the table who who they feel can lead to a uh, a result that'll that'll bring a bill to the floor that that uh, the legislature can pass the governor can sign i do i i think she was wrong about uh about uh the uh who decides whether or not the public was going to be allowed into the capitol I believe that still that the leaders of the House and the Senate have uh, have authority over over the operation of the Capitol and certainly the legislative office building. You don't think that's the governor's decision.
1: Thank you for that clarification, Kevin. You've written about the whole process behind the the cannabis bill. You described it as chaotic, shrouded in secrecy. So what do you see as some potential problems with the system for awarding licenses for sellers and growers? I understand, you know, originally they were thinking starting May 2022, you'd see retail opening, but now it's getting moved even further back. So, So what are your what are your thoughts on that?
3: it's a complicated process. It's expensive to open uh, a business like this. And so people are going to need uh, financial backers and investors. Uh, it's It's highly regulated and uh, state government plays a big part in it. And it is in many places uh, often susceptible to political influence and the doling out of political favors. So I recall, I think in Massachusetts, they had to scrap the first round of, uh, of, of licenses, the process because there was so much uh, political influence and uh, it, it was a mess. Uh, These, the stakes are high. People, people uh, have visions of making fortunes. Not everybody does in the marijuana business. There's, there is money to be made, but there's plenty of money to be lost and so uh, it will will have to rely on uh, a really uh, skillful uh, regulatory system uh, that uh, that is free of political influence. That's difficult to create in a system that that appears to be you know even in the even in the, in the drafting of the bill uh, had a lot of uh, there was a lot of interest in, in favoring some people over others.
1: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see who sits on this equity council uh, members being picked pretty soon.
3: Well, and also just just to go back to your previous point, this was um, the the whole issue of legalizing marijuana for recreational use. It has been it has been a a public issue for a long time. Don't wait till the last two weeks of the legislative session to uh, uh, to to reveal the proposal. It's just as. That, in many ways, is quite anti-democratic, and it is an invitation to trouble.
1: Let's move on to uh, the state Republican Party. They picked a new chair. Who is it?
3: It is Ben Proto, a Republican operative of many years uh, from Stratford.
1: He uh, surprises in this choice. uh, I'm sorry. Any surprises in this choice?
3: Uh, that he won by uh, such a large margin on the first ballot was a surprise. There had been uh, four candidates uh, initially, and one of them, Jennifer Casado of Florida, uh, was uh, ruled ineligible because she's not a um, a Connecticut a registered to vote in Connecticut. Uh, so that left three candidates, and uh, that was to the advantage of, uh, of Ben Proto, who may have been a lot of people's second choice, um, you know, or whatever support she had that they, they may he been proto may have been uh, their second choice when they when they couldn't uh, go to, uh, to her to go vote, couldn't vote for her. And then um, also, as there is the after the, the role is called, uh, he, he had enough to win. But there is the treachery round of, uh, of conventions and roll call votes like this where you get a chance to change after you see the lay of the land. It, appeared, it was clear he, had, he was going to win, and uh, then I think 14 more votes switched largely from Jim Campbell of Westport to Ben Proto. Why people do that, it's always been a, a mystery to me.
1: We just have a couple of minutes left, but what does this choice mean for the future of the, the state GOP, uh, Kevin? This is a question that everyone's been asking, right, <laughs> ever yeah. since uh, President Trump left office. What does it mean for Republicans well, here who've seen membership? It,
3: it's a good that's 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 a, the essential question, isn't it? I mean, Ben Proto is sort of uh, an example of the of the terrible path that the Republican Party has taken. He was uh, a big, big uh, enthusiastic supporter of of John McCain in 2000 and 2008 and by 2016 he was the state uh, chairman of the uh, of the Trump campaign so uh, I'm not I'm I am not sure what it means in terms of ideology and beliefs he will have an opportunity to uh, show uh, his skill because also yesterday state senator um, Alex Casser of of greenwich resigned from the state senate she's a democrat first democrat to win that seat in almost 90 years in 2018 and reelected in 2020 that's going to create a special election because she resigned yesterday instead of at the beginning of july has to be special election has to be this summer it's an opportunity for uh, ben proto to uh, uh put a put a pretty pretty big victory on the board in in that uh in that election if he can't know, if the republicans can't win that seat back in a special election that that tells a pretty grim tale for them
1: who could be some potential candidates in that race
3: uh the candidate who ran in 2020 uh a, a greenwich republican named ryan uh, fazio i think he's interested i haven't i haven't checked the news this morning but he was, uh, he was a very enthusiastic, hardworking candidate, impressed a lot of people, and came close uh, in November. So he would be a natural uh, candidate. There are a couple of Republican state representatives in uh, in Greenwich, which has the bulk of the delegates and the voters. So uh, they may be interested because they won't have to give anything up. In, they don't have to give up any office in a special summer election uh, to uh, to run for the state Senate. But, the delegates, there's no primary allowed in a special election in Connecticut. The delegates who gather to choose the nominee are the delegates from the convention last year. So they may be predisposed to supporting the candidate they did uh, last year. They may already be, you know, they, they may be that person's supporters. Because in these conventions, when you know you're going to be the candidate, you often try to have your friends be named as the delegates so they you're sure they'll show up for the convention, and cast their vote for it. So they'll get to do it again.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in this uh, special state Senate election uh, this summer. Kevin Rennie, thank you for joining us. And of course, I'll be interested to see uh, you know some Republican hopefuls in this, this governor's race coming up. Uh, before we know it, we'll, we'll be sure to have you back to talk about that.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Kevin is a Hartford Current columnist. He can uh, read his blog. We'll tweet it out at where we live. And he's, of course, a former state lawmaker. That's Kevin Rennie. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Robin Doyne Aiken. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor.